Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 320 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses, useful resources, and an awesome supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher series. How are you, Al? Well, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm sort of sitting here in the middle of about 75,000 things. So it's quite right. nice to take a break, have a chat to my friend Val, get my head <laughs> sorted out a bit, you know. Yeah. I get it. I have five million things too, I know. It's a bit overwhelming. But, you know, we'll get there. We, we want to give a big shout-out to Colleen in the car. I love that. Colleen mm. in the car who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and entitled it, Yes, I Want It to Be a Writer. Now, Colleen in the car is from America and she says, I first tuned into So You Want to Be a Writer podcast when my kids were all in high school and I was spending a lot of time driving them here and there. I listened to Val and Al chit-chat about all things writing while I was trying to figure out what I would do when I was no longer driving to do to this or that. Through their conversations and author interviews, I began to believe that maybe I too could be a writer. I tuned in every week, sometimes every day, trying to catch up on the back catalogue and learnt something, sometimes many things from each episode. A couple of months ago, I launched my youngest chick out of the nest. Yay! And last week, I finished my first manuscript. Yay! I'm so grateful to Val and Al for all that they do every week to encourage new writers like me. Their honesty about their experiences and generosity with their knowledge is what helped me get the pages written. No matter where you are in your writing journey, this podcast will enhance the ride. Oh, nice. Love it. That's a cracking ending sentence, Colleen. Well done. I like the way you've tied that all like back in that together. Motif. Well done. So well done. And you so know what? Good. I totally relate to you because I also spend my you know, half my waking life in the car going from place to place. Mm. Um, And you do get a lot of time to think about what you might want to do next. (laughs) Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. The car is such a good opportunity to um, just think things through, actually. It's that and the shower are my favourite things for solving problems. Yes. We spend, I I just say when I am in the the, uh, car with the kids, particularly if I have them, you know, on their own um, and we have a good 20 minutes, like you got to, you need a good 20 to 30 just to kind of work your way into it. But it's a great place to actually have those conversations. Like you, it's very hard to get boys to actually speak to you on any meaningful level beyond I need a banana and where's the wee bix. Um, (laughs) which is pretty much my entire conversation with my youngest most days. Um, But, you know, when you're in the car and, you know, there's sort of like not much going on and you're all looking out the window and that's when you can get into some really good good stuff. You can get some good life lesson action in there. Yeah, um, fantastic. Yeah, but then you also spend a lot of time just sitting there by yourself waiting for them to do stuff. So that's when (laughs) you think about other things or listen to podcasts if you're Colleen. So well done. Yes. Thanks for that. Thank you, Colleen. Really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And, of course, if you're listening to this podcast and you have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use, we'd really be grateful because it helps us in the rankings. It does. 
And you know Shall what? Speaking of reviews, let's just yes. go one further. Okay. Speaking of reviews, um, if you've read our fabulous book, So You Want to Be a Writer, oh, yes. um, we would love a review on Goodreads or Amazon or wherever yes. it is that you like to leave reviews. And just while you're in the zone, just throw a little review at an AL Tate book because, you yes. know, like let's get, in, let's get ourselves into a reviewing frame of mind, shall we? Yes, I think that's a good idea. We should have a reviewing week where we all review, just review. Just you know review. I mean? Yeah, you other do people's one books. review a day on something. Other people's books. Yeah, about other yeah, people's books. Other people's books. All right. Books. That's coming up. That's okay. coming up. We'll work All out right. how that's going to work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. Now, this week, the um, Children's Book Council of Australia announced the Book of the Year Notables for 2020. And this is super, super exciting because there's so many of our friends and people in the podcast community who are on the list. And it's no mean feat to be on the list. No, I mean, it's it fantastic. Is. It so is we have no mean feat. Leslie Gibbs, who teaches writing chapter books for six to nine year olds at the Australian Writers' Centre, and her book, it's beautiful beautiful book called Searching for Cicadas um, is up for an award. Also, Astrid Schult, who has been on the podcast and is alumna of the Australian Writers' Centre. She's done courses. Um, and her book, her debut novel, Four Dead Queens, is in the older readers category. In the younger readers category, Tamsin Janu, who's also been on the podcast, um, and she has also done courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. Her book, Winston and the Wondrous Wooba Gymnastics Club, is in the running. Vicky Conley, who did our picture books course, is there for Little Puggle Song. Kate Simpson, who has done courses with us, is there for Dear Grandpa. And, I mean, it's just it's just a excitement frenzy over here. It is We're exciting. We're doing happy dances everywhere. It is exciting because the um, Notables list is essentially the long list for the CBCA's Book of the Year, the Children's Book Council of Australia's Book of the Year. Um, I've been on that list and I have to tell you it was mm. a very exciting moment in my life exciting. and so I feel very, very excited for all of these uh, fantastic authors that we have. Kate Simpson will be on the podcast in an, in an upcoming episode because yes. we're um, having a bit of a chat very, very soon. And she's got, I've got to say, she's got a book coming out next week called Anzac Girl. It's a mm. picture book for older kids and it is just sensational. Like all the feels. Fantastic. Make sure oh, you can wow. keep an eye out for it because, you know, I, I read a lot of books, as you know, mm. and I get sent a lot of books and mm. it's, it was a real standout for me. It's a great book. Beautiful yeah. illustrations as well. Very much looking forward to that. All right, so congratulations one and all. Let's move on to another link that we have for you, which is really good, called Working with a Literary Agent, Six Things You Shouldn't Expect Them to Do, Should Not Expect Them to Do. Why is this a good one, Al? I think it's a good one. It's on the rightlife.com, which is a good general writing uh, website. And I think it's a good one because – I think a lot of people don't really necessarily understand what an agent does. And I think that they don't understand that different agents offer different things. And I Mm. think they also don't understand that having the right agent for you is really, really important. And I think when you're sort of looking for an agent, there's just that desperation of I must have an agent. And Mm. any sort of person who jumps at your submission um, is 
is obviously, I mean, look, let, let, let's not get this wrong. This is mm. a very exciting moment. Um, but there are some things that you need to think about that, are, that of what your expectations might be from an agent um, mm. and whether or not the agent in question that you are talking to is actually going to be able to fill the role that you want. And one of those things that I think um, it's important to kind of work out very, very closely with an agent is um, so one of the points that the Right Life blog makes is that one of the things not to expect from a literary agent is editorial advice. Mm. So, you know, there's an expectation maybe that you're going to work very closely with your agent and they're going to help you to get your submission up to, you know, definitely uh, be accepted by publishers. And I Mm. think it's important to understand that not all agents that's want right. to do that mm. or, or, or are qualified or are qualified to do that. So different agents offer different things. Now, one mm. of the things that I've learned over many years of working with agents, um, and that's possibly because I, you know, am much more experienced now at understanding, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of my own um, manuscripts. Mm. But for me these days, um, if I was looking for a new agent, um, the, the agent's business skills would be far more important to me than their editorial skills at this point. Now, that is not necessarily mm. what you're going to be looking for if you are a first-time author, a debut author looking for an agent for the first time because sometimes you do need to work very closely with an, author, uh, an agent to get your book up to scratch. But not all agents are going to be able to offer you that editorial advice, so you shouldn't yeah. have that expectation that they will. You need to ask the question. Is this something that you're willing to do with me or, you know, are your strengths in other areas? So ask your agent, you know, before you sign up what that, you know, to work out whether or not your expectation is going to be met. Now, the other thing to work out, um, and this is something you shouldn't expect from your agent, and again, this is something that particularly when you're a debut author, um, a first time, um, is that you you kind of want to be updated constantly. You're wanting constant contact from your agent as to what's mm. happening. And I know that there's a certain level of impatience that goes with being a first time author. I most certainly suffered from it and still do to a degree <laughs> and to my detriment as well. And I will, I will actually actively say that, that mm. learning to manage that impatience has been a really big part of my development as a writer and of the development of my career as well. Um, mm. But, you know, Clients, agents are not necessarily available to you 24 hours a day, seven Mm. days a week. Um, Having said that, um, if you're waiting weeks and weeks and weeks for an agent to get back to you, Mm. you need to reevaluate that because I can honestly tell you that that is something that will drive you insane, basically. Mm. So you, you can't expect constant contact, but you can expect a professional level of, of contact, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think at some other good points in this post is not to expect that they will love everything you write and mm-hmm. not to expect that they will sell everything you write because they fundamentally believe that it's not going to sell, not necessarily because it's not good, just because it's not the right time in the market for it then they're, that's how they make their money, right? So they're not going to put their efforts into something that they don't believe is actually going to sell. They'll rather put their efforts into the things that they do believe are going to sell. So some of your projects they might get off the ground and some of your projects they might not because they and, – and if, they're, if they don't, aren't into it, you need to either do a better job to convince them that it's going to sell or potentially listen to their advice and tweak it a bit – so that it does suit the market a bit more. 
Mm. So, yeah, so that's some good points as well. So we'll put the link in the show notes, of course, which you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Speaking of which, there is an event coming up, Al, called So You Want to Be a Writer. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> there is. Um, so it, the my my event uh, for as the – let me just get all that straight. <laughs> my fundraising event for the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers yes. Festival is on this weekend, this, this very weekend. Saturday, yes. 10.30 to 12.30 um, in Nowra in the Shoalhaven. So, you know, I hope you've bought your ticket. If you have not yet bought your ticket, get your ticket because they are selling fast and I would love to see you. Come along and meet me. Come along and let's chat, you know, um, on Saturday. So, yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes and hopefully I will see you there. And, of course, I will bring the book. I will have our book um, and I'm happy to sign those books. And Valerie has already signed the books. So you are going to have books signed by both of us. So, you know, hopefully I'll see you there. Fantastic. All right. So, um. One thing that has launched this week has been our course in grammar and punctuation for fiction writers. Now, it has actually been selling its socks off because clearly it is a much-needed resource, and I've been through the course. It's fantastic, particularly if you write fiction. There are certain things when you're writing fiction like punctuating dialogue, like how to use tense in a flashback or in a memory Right, how you play with the different really tenses. Hard. Yeah, I've it's... just been do. I have just been doing this, <laughs> and I've done this as part of my copy edit. And you mm. think you've got it all sorted, and then you go back and you read it, and you go, "Oh, what? Like, where yeah. am I? What's happened here?" Yeah, yeah. But this, the course shows you very clearly the steps you need to take to make sure you have the right tense. If you're, you know, if your scene is in the present, but then you're having a flashback, how do you then go to the flashback with your tenses, and then how do you bring it back in a way that's seamless for people um but also it you know uh goes through how to when to use semicolons and uh, apostrophes and all that kind of stuff as well so if that's something that you think would be helpful to you go to writercenter.com.au slash fiction grammar that's writercenter.com.au slash fiction grammar all right so our competition this week we have three copies and you can win one of them of Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me by Paul Dale and Vicky Petratus. That's Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me. Almost 15 years as a cop working in homicide and rising to the rank of detective sergeant in the Victorian drug squad, Paul Dale had seen the worst of what people can do. But when he was accused and jailed firstly for drug offences and then for murder, Dale realised the murky world he was navigating was going to take him under two. In the major drug investigative division, Paul Dale dealt with crims like Carl Williams, Terry Hodson and Tommy Ivanovic in the underbelly of Melbourne streets. When a burglary ended in Hodson's arrest, Dale's life started to unravel. He turned to Nicola Gobbo, a lawyer and friend he thought could help. The lawyer who became known as Lawyer X. This story reveals the shocking deals done at the highest levels of the Victorian police force and the damage wrought by Victoria's pol- pol- Victoria Police's use of Lawyer X. And of course, this is non-fiction because, you know, you can't make this stuff up, right? <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to win your copy, then go to writerscentercomau slash win. That's writerscentercomau slash win. Entries close on the 9th of March. Now, Al, <laughs> are you ready for the word of the week? Yes, Valerie. I'm That's ready. That's good. 
It is. Amphibology. Amphibology. Mm. That's A-M-P-H-I-B-O-L-O-G-Y. Amphibology. Do you know what it is? Mm. I do not know what it is, Valerie. Okay, well, it might sound like the study of amphibians, right? Yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but it's not. No. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, <laughs> <laughs> it means ambiguity of speech, especially from uncertainty of the grammatical construction rather than of the meaning of the words. Oh, they need the course, Valerie. Uh, yes, they need the course. So you might say <laughs> he didn't win the quiz show and blamed the amphibology of the questions. Oh, oh. but you wouldn't. But yes, you could. You, would. <laughs> <laughs> you could, but you wouldn't. But okay. <laughs> All right, I like that word, amphibology. Uh, so my my challenge to listeners this week is to use it in a sentence and let me know how you go. And also let us know how you go. Um, if you're new to this podcast, we have an awesome Facebook group where our listener community hangs out and shares lots of fantastic, useful oh, writing resources. Oh, we saw some great books and um, the word of the week has featured greatly this yes. week, remember? Because yes. there was a couple of – there was a book shared, there was a page yep. shared, there was uh, – Valerie. I'm going to get know. that book. It's like you've got this cult out there. <laughs> okay. So uh, join the Facebook group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. All right, Al, who is our writer in residence this week? That is a fine question, Valerie. <laughs> um, our writer in residence this week is Andrew Stafford. Now, this is a very mm. interesting one because um, – Andrew's written a memoir called Something to Believe in, which is a kind of combination of personal story, music history. Um, you know, he's he's been a music writer. He's been a writer of all sorts of things. Um, you know, music was, a, the, I think, one of the most telling things about him, and you'll find that out in the opening of the book, and we do talk about it in the interview. He's got two guitars that he's had for years, and they're both, you know, fairly classic, you know, guitars. He can't play either of them. And I feel like that... <laughs> That's sort of like <laughs> sums it all up really. But um, it's a very interesting book. It's a very personal and vulnerable book, but then it's got this universal, you know, thread through it of of the music, which um, brings together a lot of things that I really like in a book. Um, so I hope you guys really enjoy this interview with Andrew. Andrew Stafford is a freelance journalist and the author of Pig City, a musical and political history of Brisbane, first published in 2004 by UQP. He has written for The Age, The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Monthly. Something to Believe in is his second book and it is out now with UQP. Welcome to the program, Andrew. Nice to be here. Thank you, Alison. All right. So... Let's talk about how you got started in this game because I've read your book, which I very much enjoyed and would very much recommend, um, and you sort of started out as something of an accidental writer. Can you tell us how you got into this game? Well, it goes back to the early 90s and uh, and I was working in a supermarket with a uh, with a friend of mine who'd started in a street paper in Brisbane called Time Off, and he was doing a journalism degree. I was not. I was. Uh, we were both at the University of Queensland, and uh, I was uh, doing a, an arts degree, really, with a, a double major in English um, and a few media studies subjects, which has stayed with me uh, in all of that time since. 
But my greatest passion um, was music, and that was the same with my friend. You know, we were like a couple of monomaniacs. It was pretty much all we talked about in the tea room. <laughs> and um, and time off was a free weekly music paper, and he said, "Come along to a gig and." you know, review it and we'll see where we go from there. I guess he must have spotted something in me. And from there, uh, you know, it just snowballed really and I started writing very quickly for the Australian edition of Rolling Stone, which gave me my first national exposure. And, uh, you know, that sort of took me through the 1990s. I had a little bit of time in, in Sydney uh, and then sort of came back to Brisbane with my tail between my legs. And this was moving the story forward quite quickly. But when I did come back to Brisbane, which was in uh, the year 2000, I needed a reason to be back in Brisbane. And so I started writing Pig City uh, as, as a result of that. Okay. Well, I do want to talk to you about that. But first of all, I want to go into the music writing aspect a little bit because, you know, okay, so you went along and you went to a gig and you reviewed a gig. Now, obviously, you've read a lot of gig reviews at this point in your life, so you have an idea of what a gig review looks like. But I'm just did, yeah. I'm just sort of – I've always thought, like, I read a lot of different types of writing and obviously I'm interested in music myself, so I've read a lot of, of that sort of thing. And to me, I've always felt – like one of the most difficult things about music writing is that you are trying to capture an experience for an audience that wasn't there. And, you know, you're describing a bass line, like really, okay, or a guitar solo or whatever. Now, how do you go about doing that? Like, and did you kind of instinctively know how to do that or is that something that you've just really built? Because it's a craft in itself, I think. Yeah, it is. And I think there are a few things to touch on in that question, I think the first thing is that if you want to write about music or any art form, you really need to be able to write well in the first place. And I think, you know, in terms of traditional journalism, people who write about the arts tend to get tend to get looked down on a little bit, to be honest, by the by the newsbreakers and gatherers in the business and um, you know, art sections of newspapers tend to be the tend to be the first to feel the axe when uh, mm. times get tight. But they tend to involve some of the best writers in the business mm. um, because it is a very difficult thing to capture. The usual phrase about uh, writing that music, of course, is that it's like dancing about architecture. <laughs> I can't remember exactly where that phrase com comes from because it's actually been... Uh, attributed to many people over the years and the other quote um, about music journalism comes from Frank Zappa who by the way I think has also been um, one of those people ascribed to the, to the um, quote about dancing about architecture I think it also was uh, credited to Elvis Costello no one's quite sure but I can tell you one thing that Frank Zappa did say about uh, music writing but he, he, his quote was that most rock journalism is people who can't write interviewing people who can't talk for people who can't read. Uh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yes, that's Frank Zappa at, at his most acerbic. Um, but uh, look, I think, I think more seriously, um, you do, you really do need to be able to write to um, to write about uh, music convincingly. And my the way I've gone about that is simply to try to use very plain 
language and not to try to overcomplicate things. I think you do need a I think you do need an ear for poetry and for metaphor, mm. but the biggest danger that most young writers, or the biggest trap that most young writers fall into when they're starting to write about music is that they show off. Mm. And I think the trick uh, to writing about music is as far as possible not to show off. There's an awful lot of wannabe Lester Bangs out there. Lester Bangs, <laughs> for those who don't know, was kind of like the... Uh, Hunter S. Thompson of music journalism. He had an instantly identifiable gonzo style and he's had a lot of imitators. But, um, yeah, the, the, the first thing is to be yourself. Um, I, I would also just say on, on this question that the, the writers that really inspired me and stayed with me the most uh, in terms of writing about music were some of the early practitioners. There was... Paul Williams. Paul Williams was the first kind of really serious rock journalist. He founded a magazine called Crawdaddy in 1966. And uh, he was, was a big Bob Dylan obsessive, wrote heaps of books about him. Um, but he was basically trying to find a language to write about music uh, when at that stage the, the form was embryonic and and he was this, he just kind of kept it simple as well. And the other thing that I really appreciated about him was that he was unafraid to write in the first person as well. Mm. Um, and that wasn't something that I started to cultivate until a bit later and really sort of took to extremes and something to believe in. But I think the key lesson I learned from that and another early music writer called Paul Nelson, he was the second person I was going to mention, uh, both of those, both of those two men uh, were unafraid to be vulnerable, and I liked that. Okay. Well, that's also something I want to talk to you about. But just before we move on to that, one of the things I think about music writing that can be, um, I like to call it death by reference, but it's like where the music writer is showing off how much they know about 75 other gigs that they've been to that, you know, might they can reference to, to describe this particular gig. And do, is that something that um, – do you think that sort of newer writers fall into or is that something that, you know, you develop more as you have more references to talk about? No, I, I would I would say uh, there's more of a trap for young players. Mm. So, so the first the first rather than the second, okay. uh, as I said you know, before, you know, the, the big, uh, the main trap that writers fall into in writing about music is trying to, Trying to show off, show off. a whole lot of overcooked prose, yeah. and uh, and yes, trying to show off their uh, wider knowledge about music. I think a certain amount of, I mean, a certain amount of referencing when you write about music is absolutely inevitable. Yeah, um, and indeed, to a degree, it's it's necessary because uh, you need to be able to place what you're writing about in a broader cultural context. Yeah, and uh, to that extent, I think having a a deeper knowledge of uh, of music and whatever you happen to be writing about, where that uh, piece of music or album or, or artist, uh, where that's coming from. I think that knowledge is essential. Um, but there is a um, you know there's a there's only a certain amount that you can uh, that you could spend you know writing about that before you actually have to write about the subject at hand. And of course, you run the risk of losing your uh, 
read as if you're uh, referencing a whole lot of stuff that they then have to research for themselves. That's right. Or I've never heard of. All right, so let's talk about you. Let's talk about your first book. How did that come to be published? Well, I was pretty lucky with Pig City, actually, because I think my timing was very fortunate um, in a couple of ways. One was it was an interesting time in Brisbane, the turn of the millennium, and we had a number of other writers, uh, Nick Earls, John Birmingham, I think probably most notably and certainly most influential on me was Andrew McGahn, all start not just writing about Brisbane but starting to get um, interested in, in Brisbane's colourful past and Queensland's colourful past. Mm. And the most influential book on me to that extent was Last Drinks by Andrew McGahn, which was his third novel. Um, that was a... That was a much more political book. On the other hand, you had um, you know, Zigzag Street by Nick Earls had come out a few years before then and, and was much lighter. Um, I don't mean lightweight, um, mm. just, just to um, make that very clear. I thought Zigzag Street was a, was a beautiful book and had a really deft touch about it and was more a kind of, if not celebratory about Brisbane, was at least comfortable with coming from there and comfortable with um, comfortable with placing itself in that very suburban sort of milieu. And I had come back from Sydney, as I mentioned before, I needed a, a reason to be back in Brisbane because I kind of got kicked in the ass by the Emerald City. And, <laughs> and uh, I'd, I'd had this idea floating around for a little bit to write a bit, a bit about Brisbane and its musical past and how that intersected with the politics of the time under Jabioki Peterson and uh, I started sketching it out after I saw Savage Garden play the closing ceremony of the Olympic Games. Which, oh yeah. You know, which sounds kind of funny for a guy that had, you know, grown up on punk and the Saints and so forth. But that was where it was. It it, it amused me. I thought that uh, I, I thought that Brisbane, you know, it, it said something about Brisbane that uh, Savage Garden had come from had come from there and were, were reaching this enormous audience. And so I wrote this kind of coming-of-age book, and I think Brisbane at that time was, you know, really wanted to hear that, so timing was in my favour. But it came out in 2004, and the other thing that was in my favour timing-wise was, uh, was U University of Queensland Press, in 2002, so a couple of years before publication, I actually took the first couple of chapters to them and the, and the outline, and they were really, Madonna Duffy, the publisher there, was, was keen, and she took a punt on me. I think it was actually the first book that she signed up. And UQP at that time was in something of a, you know, it was going through change as well. Um, Peter Carey, who was their flagship author, had left for Random House, and taken the publisher with her and uh, with him and um, and Madonna had come in with a brief to sign up new work and new authors and and I kind of logged in with this new idea and I really only had a track record in writing for magazines and street press behind me but um, she obviously thought it was a good idea and she picked me up so so I got lucky I, I had a contract uh, with them, I think it was the second publisher that I approached. I actually, 
actually approached text publishing first, and I was told by the uh, one of the editors there that she had no interest in fanzine-level journalism. So <laughs> <laughs> that stayed with me and, uh, and spurred me on, it must be said. Oh, that's interesting. But, I, but I, I got much luckier with UQP after that, and I was very grateful for the opportunity. All right, so if, if, if Pig City was like a coming-of-age book in 2004, 16 years later, we have your second book, Something to Believe in, um, which is out mm. now and is probably more of a, you know, mid-lifey kind of book. It's also a very yeah. personal, personal story within a universal framework. So you're using music as a universal framework, but there's a lot of vulnerability, and you mentioned vulnerability um, earlier, um, but you are sharing your your own story here, including your mental health struggles. And w was that a difficult thing for you to work through? No, it was the easiest thing in the world. Oh, honestly. there you go. Okay. I really mean it. Um, it took two effectively it took two months to write and there's right. a bit of backstory about that but essentially it got written in one big blurt and it was the most uh it was like channeling really and, and whereas pig city had been kind of chipped out over four years and is a very heavily researched book yeah um, uh, this one obviously i was just it was it was written on the fly very spontaneously with no great plan until I kind of realised what I was actually doing. Something to believe in really honestly did come about more or less by accident. And it wasn't until I had um, maybe four or 5,000 words that I kind of realised what I was doing. And at that point, I did sketch out a, a chapter outline and then just kind of followed it through from there. So um, it was actually, it was a very intense and a very rewarding creative experience in that way. Um, there were certainly some sections that were more difficult to write than others. Yeah. Uh, but fundamentally, and probably not the bits you think. Right, um, okay. By the way. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, it, it was an intense, an intense and rewarding creative experience to write that book. And in some ways I can only hope that I am similarly touched to write something uh, that fast again. If I had my time over, mind you, I would probably do some things differently. Okay. I think uh, the fact that it was written so quickly kind of uh, uh, meant that there probably wasn't time to overthink it. Yeah. And maybe that's a, and maybe that's a good thing. And I think it's also possible that there are some drawbacks as a result. But that's okay. I can live with that. So, it, it, like any memoir, like, it, you know, one of the things that you have to decide with a, with a book like this is what you put into it and what you leave out of it. It doesn't sound like that, that to me sounds like you've just done that on an instinctive level. Like, or was there a process of editing where you went, mm, maybe I don't really want to say that and took bits out? Well, there were, only, there were a couple of bits like that, but very few on the whole. I think I was trying to skirt the edge of too much information all along the way. Yeah. I had a couple of mantras. One was radical transparency and the other was relatable content. Yeah. And so, so I threw in a story about, you know, this is far from the first time an author has done it, of course, but I threw in a story about losing my virginity because relatable content, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and, and, there, and, there was a, and, and there was a musical link to it and that's key. And, uh, you know, really uh, something to believe in Look, like Pig City in a way, they're only ostensibly books about music. When I talk about Pig City these days, I usually simply describe it as a book about Brisbane. Yeah. 
So in fact, music is actually a Trojan horse, to, if you like, to kind of talk about a whole lot of other stuff yeah. about the city. And similarly, something to believe in is uh, it looks like a book about music. Uh, it is, in a sense, about the healing power of music. Uh, that's its fundamental theme. But again, it's like um, it's a sneaky way to talk about a lot of other things. Which it does really well. And But the interesting thing, I, you know, as I said to you, like I read it, there's definitely that universal framework of music and, you know, there's a lot of music references scattered throughout the book and you have little sections, you know, chapter break sections about specific, you know, songs or specific, you know, artists. And how did you decide what they were going to be? Like how did you choose those? Were they just an instinctive thing as you were writing it or was it something that you went back later and went, oh, this would illustrate that well? Well, that was probably the chapter outline that I mentioned earlier remained fairly, um, I followed that fairly closely, uh, you know, certainly in terms of the um, story of my life progression, uh, that um, that followed the formula pretty well. But in terms of the songs and, and albums that I discussed in between chapters, uh, that was an interesting device. It actually came about because initially I worried that uh, that the book in progress looked like it could be a bit thin, and quite frankly, I saw it as, as a way of padding it out a little. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was also informed by um, Tim Rogers's memoir um, Detours, mm. where he had these little little chapters between chapters that he called bagatelles, mm. just where he was just riffing and digressing on little minor topics that had no main relationship to the narrative but were um, like amusing afterthoughts that still uh, reflected back on the text in some way. And the, the songs and records that I wrote about, they did change along the way. Sometimes I realised that something I thought I would write about in a breakout actually fitted better into the main text. Yeah. Picture This by Blondie was, was one example. I thought I would write about, I thought I would write about 800 words on that and it ended up being better just a, a look of short notation within one of the chapters itself. Um, yeah, that was how that came about. And it, and it actually, those sections ended up being some of my favourite passages of writing in the book. Mm. And uh, I liked the way that they, did reflect back on the relevant sections of the text. Yeah. So, for example, like I really like the, um, I really like the bit on "We Are the Road Crew" by Motorhead, which yeah, yeah. comes after, uh, which comes after a chapter where I was effectively a roadie touring with a Brisbane band in Europe. Yeah, that was an interesting chapter in your life. I found that fascinating. I was a bit like, well, "He's Gonzo journalism. I'm going to go and do it. I've been writing about it for years, and now I'm going to do it." And I thought that was a yeah, really, was. very interesting. <laughs> aspect and do I actually want to keep up with this maybe not I was gonna I was gonna move on to like the fact that you you know you your family and your friends do appear on the pages of the book quite often um, did you have to run it past them before the book was published or did you have any did they have any reactions to it at all I certainly ran it past my brother and my father yeah uh, and one of my cousins as well um, and they were they were okay with it. I think yeah. my brother said that it was it was weird because he'd heard me tell many of those stories before, and it yeah, was like yeah. being, he said he felt like he was inside my own head for for the time that he was reading it. 
My father was very generous about it. I thought there could be some things for him that were very hard to read. Yeah. Um, but uh, he had the uh, he had the attitude that it was my story, and I was uh, you know I had as much right to tell that as as anybody else, and um, respected that we might have some different perspectives about certain aspects. But mm. uh, that was okay. The person that I couldn't ask, of course, was my mother, and that was the hardest because yeah. uh, she wasn't. Uh, my mother suffers from end stage Alzheimer's disease, uh, and so I was not able to ask her about uh, writing about her decline, her physical yeah. and mental decline. And, you know, that posed obviously an ethical dilemma for me, yeah. um, not being able to ask her permission. And I had to ask myself a pretty tough question, really, about whether she would approve. Uh, and not whether she would approve now, but whether she would approve when she was, you know, when she was well, if she would have consented to to that in advance. Yeah. The, the the most honest answer to that is I'm not really sure. The second question that I asked myself is would she be proud of me? And mm. that was. I decided that on balance, I thought I thought she would be. Yeah. And, and so I decided to. I decided that that was. An essential part of the narrative arc of the story, and and I think one of the main drivers for me to write the book in the first place. Yeah. So I decided that it was a story worth sharing, and a story that many people would relate to, and uh, so and so that formed an important part of the arc of the book. So the interesting thing about writing a book like this, and particularly a, a, a very personal book like this, is I, I imagine it's quite cathartic to kind of get it all out there. But then you've actually got to put it out into the world and then you have to go and promote it, which means you then have to talk about it all the time. Um, and I just wondered how how that was for you. You're absolutely right. The, the promotion side of it and the talking about uh, some of these aspects of the book has actually been far more difficult than uh, than writing it in the first place. Because mm. uh, you know, as you as, as I mentioned before, it was very quick to write, quick and dirty. Um, it felt like it was being channelled, and, and then yes, you've, you've got to go and you know do do interviews, uh, you know, like this one. Uh, but you know. A, Particularly immediately after it came out, it was it was more difficult, you know, trying to find a language to talk about it, being confronted with some some more difficult questions that uh, kind of plonked me back into some fairly difficult situations, and then having to talk about those things in front of an audience was yeah was harder than uh, harder than just writing writing it for myself. When when it was a cathartic experience, to be honest, I mean that is a a cliche when it comes to writing about personal content but in this instance I can't deny that it was true I'd had a fairly bumpy few years and uh, and I think you know I guess these cliches exist for a reason you know there was a therapeutic element about uh, about writing this stuff out it was a, it was a healing experience in some ways to write the book 
Okay, so let's switching gears. Your work as a freelance writer has taken you in a range, you know, it's taken in a range of your interests and passions, including AFL. How do you manage to work across a range of subjects without being pigeonholed, like into, say, music writing? Because I think that's something that happens, you know, as a freelancer, because I freelance for many years, and you become someone who writes about certain things and you're, you're the go-to person for those kinds of things. But if you want to then branch out, it's, it can sometimes be more difficult. So how, did, how do you manage to sort of keep all those balls in the air? Well, I think I figured out reasonably quickly uh, that writing about music for a living was a career-limiting move, to say the least. <laughs> um, and as much as I still enjoy it, and I do still enjoy it, um, I have a broad... I've always had a, a really broad range of interests, and... I didn't want to be stuck writing about about one thing. I wanted to be able to feed those different passions and share them with other people. And yeah, look, as I as I said earlier, it can be hard if you're writing about music to be taken seriously by by editors, um, other than by arts editors, of course. Mm. And uh, so I started fairly early on to to try to branch out, and it was. Yeah, it was it was difficult. I, I had interests in the natural world, in wildlife, and natural history. I started to pick up pick up some work in um, environmental publications quite early on. But you know, the, the biggest uh, the biggest break that I got was in two thousand and six, um, courtesy of a sports writing friend of mine, John Harms, and uh, a vacancy had opened up in the Age to write about. Um, AFL in Queensland, um, namely the Brisbane Lions and the Gold Coast Suns, and I'm originally from Victoria, um, so I'd grown up with the sport. It also meant, just by the by, that I had uh, come to writing Pig City uh, as, as something of, a, of an outsider to, mm. to Brisbane, which caused a degree of angst, but that's mm. another story. Um, and the age took me on uh, more or less sight unseen on the basis of that recommendation was the first time, you know, I didn't have many contacts. I didn't know many other journalists, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. And so I knew nothing about the internal job market. I Mm. I, I had realised it was very much a game about who you knew rather than what you knew. And finally, I had someone who had picked up Pig City and and really appreciated and said, you know, you, you really should get this guy, he knows a bit about Brisbane and he knows a bit about, about footy and, uh, and he can write. And so, and so they took it on. Great. And, or took me on and that was, that was really lucky. And the other thing that uh, was great about that was um, for the first time I was working uh, in a really high-intensity environment in terms of having to hit deadlines, really, really tough deadlines when I would be writing about a match as it was unfolding and filing 600, 700 words of copy, you know, within a couple of minutes or five minutes at most of the final siren sounding, sometimes yeah. before the final siren. And, you know, so it was a real sink or swim kind of scenario. And I was petrified about it when I started, of course, because I'd never done anything like that before. And I'd been a bit of a stone cutter as a writer and, you know, so to be 
thrown in the deep end like that just meant that there was no time to overthink anything. And yeah. I gained a great deal of confidence from that because, you know, then, you know, it would come out the next day and if I could get hold of the paper, I'd read back on it and go, well, under the circumstances, it's actually not too bad. <laughs> and by the next day, it would be forgotten. Yeah. You know, it would be chip wrapping, really. Yeah. And, yeah, that just, look, it gave me a bit of a, to be honest, it gave me a, a bit of a sense of perspective more than anything. But, yeah. You know, I yeah. wasn't really all that important. You know, <laughs> the world would move on. <laughs> Um, all right, and so now you also have a, a Patreon um, account and you acknowledge your subscribers by name in the back of Something to Believe in, which I loved. Um, can you explain how and why that started? Uh, out of desperation. Yeah, yeah, uh, desperation is a great 20, driver. <laughs> yeah, out of, uh, at the beginning of 2018, uh, look, I had a couple of wretched years in 2016 and 2017 personally. Um, and I was, but, but what I was doing during that time was I was, you know, kind of breathing life into, you know, my freelance career, which had been, you know, dormant for quite a long time. I mean, mm. I'd, I'd been continuing to do the AFL footy round. I'm about to start my 15th year of that. Wow. But I wasn't doing a whole lot else other than caring for my mum and driving a cab. Mm. And I was driving a cab for a long time, partly out of habit and partly because it was very flexible. And partly because it was a guaranteed income, at least, uh, until Uber came along and started to eat everybody's lunch. Yeah. And so I got out of that. I actually handed over the keys to the cab uh, on the same day that I handed over the keys to my mother's house after that was sold and she was moved into an aged care facility. And I didn't know what else to do, so I just literally threw myself back into freelance journalism uh, full time, and I just thought it's. I think I just thought it's now or never, and I just decided to have a red hot go at it. But I was in debt, and you know, summers were very hard in particular. I had the backstop of the football riding during the AFL season, mm. uh, and then in summer, I would inevitably slide into debt. And so, I started Patreon uh, really as a way to try to desperately scare up some money during the during the summer months and I you know I fairly quickly attracted about 80 to 100 patrons and you know initially that was enough to at least pay for food at the end of the month and you know or, or in you know or pay a bill you know pay a utilities bill or something like that mm. um so so that was the first driver I, I I had seen a few other writers doing it successfully and I was frankly shocked um, that, you know, a few of them were doing it successfully enough to, to pay their rent. Mm. And I thought it was worth, you know, I thought go. it was worth a go. And the first thing that I wrote was under the headline, I am just a teenage dreamer. And it was about having a couple of guitars at home that I didn't really play. And yet, and yet I wrote about music and, uh, you know, it was about being a wannabe. I, I found that aspect of your when I read that in your um, in something to believe in, I, I was surprised by that. <laughs> should I be surprised by that? I don't know if I should. But the fact that you had those guitars and you'd hold, held on to them all of those years and you didn't really play them. Yeah, that's right. And again, I thought relatable content. Very relatable content. <laughs> it was, it, it was, you know, because a lot more people, uh, you know, love music and cherish it and are guided by it. They don't necessarily 
play it. Um, but I was also sketching out, okay, this is what I do, this is who I am. Yeah. And that became the first chapter of Something to Believe in, or at least became the introduction. Mm. And, uh, you know, I started to... I didn't want to sort of stay limited to that for similar reasons to what I was outlining before, so I started writing about other things. You know, I'd write a politics piece or an environmental yarn or something like that. And then I'd keep on circling back to music. And the second thing I wrote was about uh, hearing my dad. My dad is a very accomplished singer, and I, I would hear him singing around the house as I grew up. So I wrote something about that and about him actually making his first album at the age of 77. Yes. And that became, that became the second part of something yeah. to believe in. And, uh, you know, follow it through a little bit later, and then there was a piece about, you know, early memories of watching Countdown. And uh, so that was when I started to see a thread of, of memoir emerging, and that was when I sat down and sketched out the chapter outline in, in February of 2018. And... Uh, you know, a couple of months later, you know, I had a, a fully fully finished book. But uh, just sticking to the theme of Patreon, yeah, look, that, that has become quite a successful page for me. And in fact, and your writers will be, uh, you know, your audience will be interested in this now is, you know, a really significant part of underpinning my own income. Um, you know, I've got about 280 patrons now and... and it is indeed enough to to pay the rent, so wow. it's, it's become a game. It's become a game changer for me, and uh, you know I've, I'm in a very fortunate position now. I'm, I'm doing you know some of the most interesting work of my career now, which I'm very grateful for. And certainly, not all of it is about is about music, but but Patreon's been the great enabler. In a way, it, it, is, it has turned me into a far more prolific writer than I ever was because I have a subscriber base to serve. Um, and it's also been the difference between being a full-time freelance journalist and needing to get a day job somewhere else. So you find it helpful. Like I often wonder whether or not it feels like a burden sometimes knowing that you've got you know, people who are waiting for your output. Sometimes it is. I mean, mm. I'm actually supposedly on holiday at the moment. I'm taking four or five weeks break ahead of the football season starting um, after finishing off a very big assignment for Griffith Review over December and January. And after that, I was just like, look, I just want to take a break because I'm probably not going to get much of a chance to have one again for the rest of the year. And, and yet I'm still churning out stuff for, for Patreon twice a week. But... Uh, Look, that's a time investment of about usually about five to six hours a week, yeah. and and I can I can deal with that. Worth it. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Andrew Stafford. Uh, people can find your book Something to Believe in out there in the world, and you have a website, I believe. What is your website address? Well, it is indeed uh, Patreon.com/slash Andrew Stafford. Excellent. That's the that's the best way to find uh, a whole lot of new and original and exclusive content from me. Um, I also maintain an archive of my work at simply at andrewstaffordblog.com of work that has been published elsewhere. And, uh, hmm. yeah. The, and the, we'll, find you, we'll find you on Twitter as well. Me, you'll find me on Twitter at Staffo Says, but you actually won't find me there at the moment because I am 
have the account deactivated for the time being while I am on holiday. Ah. Uh, but uh, but generally, yes, you will find me at uh, staffo underscore says S-E-Z. Excellent. All right. Before we finish off and let you go back to your holiday, um, could you share with us our last and exciting question for every interview, your three top tips for writers? The first one is be yourself and nobody else. But, um, trying to cultivate your own voice is probably the single longest and hardest journey of any writer. It usually takes a while to find it, but it is the single most important thing that you need to have something that is identifiably your own. Uh, when I was when I was very young, you know, one of the first writers that I absolutely adored, whether it was writing for children or for adults, was Roald Dahl. And uh, in his book, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, which was a, a collection of short stories, there was a there was a story called Lucky Break, uh, where he sketched out how he became a writer and he took a visit. Uh, Roald Dahl was a war veteran. He um, had been a fighter pilot in the in the Second World War and had been shot down. I can't remember exactly where he was shot down uh, over enemy lines, but at any rate, he, he'd come back and he had taken a visit from C.S. Forrester, who was seeking out war stories. And Roald Dahl submitted him, you know, they went to have some lunch and, uh, you know, he was supposed to give Forrester a whole pile of notes and he said he submitted him this finished story and Forrester then sort of said your piece is marvellous I haven't changed a word of it word <laughs> of it and I think submitted it to the might have been the Saturday evening post and they published it and that was Roald Dahl's lucky break and mm. uh, anyway so he told the story in, in uh, as part of the wonderful story of Henry Sugar one of the stories in there and he had seven dot points at the end of that sketching out um, his tips for people. And one stayed with me particularly. You must have a degree of humility. Mm. The writer who thinks that his work is marvellous is heading for trouble. Mm. And uh, I'm bringing that up to say you must be able to work with editors. Yeah. If you cannot work, if you cannot forge good working relationship with editors, if you are going to fight with them about every comma and semicolon you are going to be a nightmare to work with and that is only going to make your working life more difficult. You mm. have to uh, understand that there you're not always going to get your own way and sometimes you're going to have to just suck it up. There is a time to push back, but uh, learning to pick your battles is very important. So that would be that would be number two. First is be yourself. Second is have that degree of humility and be prepared to work with editors. Um, the third, oh, goodness, um, I, I'm struggling to think of think of a third, but I, but maybe I think you need to have an almost fanatical level of desire. Mm. I think that would be the third that I would uh, nominate. That uh, no writer can afford to really lose sight of that. You need to have that inner drive, and particularly if you're going to do something, if you're going to if you're going to do books, which is long form, you need to have that 
that inner drive that uh, will just not let go of you. Um, you know, you, I'm sure you all have heard yourself people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to write a book one day. I've got a book in me. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, you need to get that surgically removed. <laughs> you know. Um, so it's, true. It, it's, yeah, you, you just, if you're saying that, you're probably not going to write one. You need to have that inner drive that is actually forcing you to do it in a way. I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't... Uh, writing as i said before I, I went back to freelance journalism because i literally did not know what else i could do if if not write and uh, i think that's probably you know that it's taken me a while to get to this third point but i think that's the most important one you have to you have to almost be forced to do it it's similar with music by the way and i think with other art forms i remember david byrne from talking heads saying in an interview that it was almost like someone shoved him up, up there on stage. It was like he had to. He had no other choice. Mm. And uh, I think it's, I think for most writers, career writers, it's the same. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. It's been a pleasure and uh, very best of luck with your book, with your AFL and with your holiday. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you do next. Okay. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in Freelance Writing Stage 1 is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus interview skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash freelance. Great interview, Al. Always so interesting to talk to these authors, right? Well, I just like the fact that, you know, I guess you get to go, you get to read the story, then you get to go behind the story Mm. and you get to find out about it. I mean, I was surprised by how quickly he wrote this book because, as I said, it is a very vulnerable kind of Mm. a story. There's a lot of um, very personal detail in it, which I, I would have thought would be hard to, you know, put on the page. But, you know, the as he explains, the experience of it is some of it was difficult, but because it was such a story and so close to his heart, it kind of, mm. you know, fell out of him in, a, in in not very long at all. So, yeah, interesting story. And I hope you guys will have a look at the book because it's, um, it's out through UQP. It's a really um, very, very readable book, yes. shall we say that? Yeah. All right. So what are you doing in the coming week before we speak again? Apart from uh, the fantastic event, well, I'm of doing course. my event, you know. So I'm clearly psyching up for for the talking for talking for two hours. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you know, I'm so shy that that's very difficult for me. <laughs> no, not really. I I uh, I always do need to psych myself up to stand up in front of people. I know people probably think that that's, you know, odd, but I think it's like anything when you. I don't do it every week, so therefore when I do do it and I have to come mm. out of my study blinking into the light, blink, blink, <laughs> <laughs> like, a, like a little mole, um, then, you know, it does take a bit of psyching. But I, I think it's going to be a really great fun and a really good event. And, of course, there's going to be scones. So I will, oh, co- I, will scones. I will pretty much go anywhere for scones. So yes. I'm Are they good, though? Because, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, let really? me tell you. Yeah. They're good. Because – Deirdre, the catering manager for yes. the um, committee, the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers Festival Committee, 
she ha- she used to be in the Women's Weekly Test Kitchen, Val. Oh, that's so right. You missed this. Yes. I'm saying. They I are forgot. sensational. Yes. She is so, so good. So, mm. yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. But anyway, hopefully I'll see some of you there. What about you, Val? What are you doing? Oh, I'm thinking I need scones. <laughs> um. <laughs> no bananas. Uh, no. Okay. What? Yeah. <laughs> I... I'm going to get some sleep because mm, I've been mm-hmm. burning the midnight oil. I think the day this uh, episode comes out is the night of my is opening night of my um, art exhibition in Sydney, which is going to go for the month of March at the Darling Square Community Bank and Art Space. And wow. um, yeah, so it's um, I have not been sleeping much, and so I shall be getting some sleep. <laughs> all right um where do we find you online now uh you will find me at alisontait.com a-l-l-i-s-o-n-t-a-i-t.com you will find me on twitter at, at al tate a-l-t-a-i-t you think about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's yeah it's look it's been that kind of week and uh you will find me on facebook and instagram at alison tate writer and you You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, you'll also find all of the show notes at SoYouWantToBeAWriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want To Be A Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.